I was laughed at when I got off the stage after trying to play guitar for the very first time. I was teased about my curly hair. I was constantly being called gay because I was friends with the girls and didn't have stories of trying to sleep with them. No more basketball. I was failing my classes. I didn't have any close friends. I had a failing relationship with my family. I was depressed. I felt hopeless. I felt helpless. I kept thinking everyone around me would be better off without me. I had this uncontrollable anger. I had 13 reasons why, but thankfully I found one good reason why not. Hello, and welcome to How to Fail Successfully, the podcast that teaches the steps to success through the stories of failures. I'm so happy that you can join me as I interview some of my favorite people and encourage them to share their story with you. I'm Matthew Carrier, and this is How to Fail Successfully. to part three of my story. I am Matthew Carrier, host of How to Fail Successfully, and today I will be concluding my story. If you haven't had the opportunity yet, I would encourage you to go back and listen to part one and part two. So let's begin. Suicide is not a new concept, but we are seeing a rapid increase in suicides. Since 1999, suicides have increased by 24%. As of 2017, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S. I will be expressing my personal opinion that may possibly offend a few people. And I hope that if I offend you in any way, you reach out to me and we can further discuss in hopes to better understand. Depression is often described as a mental illness, and this frustrates me. Every time I hear a tragic story of a mass shooting or of a celebrity suicide, it's shortly followed with... Well, they had some sort of mental illness. We must do something to address mental illness in our society. And for the sake of not being misunderstood, I must say this first. Some types of depression can be attributed to mental illness. Yes, there are certain people that have real mental instabilities. But in my personal opinion, most depression is not a mental issue. I believe depression, anger, Violence is not a mental issue. It is a heart issue. The Bible says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Leonardo da Vinci also says, Tears come from the heart and not from the brain. Me personally, and many others I have known, have had a crying heart, not a broken brain. Let me say that one more time. Me personally, and many others that I have known, had a crying heart, not a broken brain. I had a heart issue that drugs, alcohol, sexual relationships could not fix. I needed help, and thankfully I found it. 
Last week, I mentioned that as I was asked to lead the basketball court, I told my mom that I was done. And only by the grace of God, my mom had already scheduled a a session with a therapist to help me talk through the thing or things that were causing my severe depression. Over the next three weeks, I reluctantly visited a therapist who helped me start the healing process. And I can honestly say it didn't do a thing. But what it did do is it stopped me from constantly thinking about suicide or harmful thoughts. I was convinced that instead of just dropping out of high school altogether, I would switch schools and attend a public school called Pine Creek. I believed that this switch saved my life. One of my first failures at this new school came during my very first basketball game. I was playing pretty well, not great, but pretty well, and had an opportunity to win the game with that last shot. I drove to the basket, and with little time left as the ball went up to, to win the game, I was fouled. I missed the shot. So no time left. Down by one, it's my chance to win the game at the free throw line in front of all of my new friends. And I'll save you the drama to let you know that I missed it. Not one, but both of them. In fact, I didn't just miss them. I missed the entire basket. And that is what they call an air ball. I was, of course, defeated and embarrassed, but the fans of my team were so supportive that they allowed me to quickly forget about it and move on to the next game. I had a good two years playing basketball with so many memories along the way, but one of my personal favorites was this story. And this will also give you a peek into who I am and kind of what drives me to succeed. Occasionally, we would have team dinners or activities where the team and their families would come together and hang out for an evening. Well, on this particular evening, we went bowling. I am an athlete, but bowling was not an activity I spent much time trying to improve upon. My experience up to this point were Friday night hangouts with loud music, dim lights, and bumpers on the side of the lanes to make sure that even the worst bowler could get a strike by just pushing the ball enough to get it down the lane. So for fun, I challenged the coach's daughters to a game of bowling because, well, I like to win. I didn't. I was beat by a 10- and 13-year-old girl, and no, I did not let them win. A couple days later, we played a pretty big rival, and the local news writer came out. I ended up having a pretty good game, so after, I was asked for an interview. In the middle of my interview, the coach and his family walked by. As I was about to answer one of the questions, the coach's daughter yelled out, Good thing he's better at basketball than bowling. Yes, this made it in the newspaper. So from that day on, I spent every Saturday morning with my buddy Justin and his dad bowling. I'm talking 7 a.m. bowling. Buying my own bowling ball bowling. I was determined to never let that happen to me again. Two years later, on my 20th birthday, I bowled a 245. I put the ball away, and I probably have been bowling twice since. Due to my early struggles in school, I ended up only graduating high school with a 2.7 GPA. I knew that college wasn't an option for me because, well, I didn't want it to be, or at least never thought that I would excel having to be in school for four more years. I have to thank my teacher, Dan Jepson, for not only bringing some excitement back into the classroom, but for helping me apply to his alma mater and then sending in a phone call or two to at least give me a chance to get in. I got in. I started college as a jazz piano performance major, and that lasted about two semesters before I switched to the most popular degree, undecided. 
I ended up finding college to be fun and interesting. I was starting to get A's and B's and enjoying what I was learning. I was at college for about two years before transferring to a college in Nashville, Tennessee. And in order for, to tell you why I decided to transfer to Nashville to go to a school called Belmont University, I have to give you a little backstory to that. The summer before my first year in college, I was asked if I wanted to play music on a missions trip with Brio Magazine, which was this girls' magazine released through Focus on the Family. So in case you missed that, I was asked to go on a girls' missions trip. Me and 800 girls. This is not an exaggeration. So I decided to make the sacrifice and go. Though my intentions or even motivations may have initially been misguided, I ended up having such a life-changing experience. And I encourage, here, plead, everyone to spend time traveling, giving your time to helping and loving on those especially in in impoverished nations. You will be changed. So not only was I changed by what I saw and experienced, but I had the chance to meet Christian singer Natalie Grant and her husband, Bernie Herms. Bernie, still to this day, is one of the most talented musicians, producers, and songwriters I've ever met. After a few nights playing on the worship team, I finally got a chance to meet and chat with Bernie. He was gentle-spirited, kind-hearted, just loving, just such a loving guy. He saw my love for playing music and told me these words, if you ever find yourself in Nashville, I'd love to have you come work with me. Well, that's all I needed. I spent the next two years at the local university working to make sure that I had the best grades I could in order to help me get to Nashville. And it worked. Two years later, I pulled up to the campus at Belmont University, ready to start my life in music. And Bernie was a man of his word and allowed me to intern with him, which ended up turning into a great friendship and mentorship. Bernie taught me how to love on people, how to truly communicate in order to allow people to feel special. My time at Belmont was an incredible experience with so many memories, but I'll highlight just a couple of my more humorous failures. So I'll title this next section, First Dates. For the life of me, I couldn't figure out why, but I was really bad at first dates. I can talk to a wall and have a great conversation, but without fail, I always had issues on my first dates. For example, and and remember, these are just a few of them. I have gotten my car towed while we were at dinner. I've gotten not one, but two flat tires while driving my date home. I forgot my wallet and had to have my date pay. I've gotten a ticket for trespassing, and it was totally not my fault. The worst was this one. I'd asked out a girl who had never gone on a date before. I was her first official date. I picked her up at her her dorm and took her to a casual restaurant, and we had a good time. I started thinking, I think I beat the curse. I spoke too soon. I turned onto the street where her dorm was, only to see flashing lights behind me. I pulled over and out stepped a police officer. He came to my window and asked for my license and registration. This wasn't my first time being pulled over, so I already had everything waiting for him. He informed me that my taillight was out, which is why he pulled me over. So with my information in hand, he walked back to the car to write me the ticket. I was embarrassed but not defeated, so we kept talking. After what seemed like forever, the police officer came back to the car and asked me to step out. It's at that point he handcuffed me and put me in the back of the patrol car. 
So while sitting in the back of the patrol car, I was informed that I had an unpaid ticket, which ended up turning into a warrant. Therefore, I was driving on a suspended license, and to top it all off, the car that I was driving was not my own. I had just borrowed it from my sister, so technically, I was not the registered owner of the car. I don't know how or why, but I started laughing at the entire situation. He looked at me strange, and then I shared with him the entire story, and he started laughing. After about 10 minutes, he let me out of the back seat, took off the handcuffs, and let me go with a ticket for my taillight. I walked back to the car, and my date was on the phone with her dad. Needless to say, we didn't talk much the last few hundred feet to her dorm. It took me about four more years to finally have my very first good date. So I kept her. I graduated college in the summer of 2007 with a Bachelor's of Business Administration with an emphasis in management and marketing. So yes, right before slash during the start of the economy crashing, as you probably all experienced, I struggled to find a job. I spent probably about three straight months every day sending out 10 applications a day. I would go into businesses and apply face-to-face only to be turned away and told I I needed to go online to apply. After three months, I still could not get one in-person interview. Like most people applying for jobs, you start with your most desirable dream job and slowly work your way back down to the I'll-take-anything job. Maybe I'm exaggerating here, but 500 applications later, I was finally hired at Starbucks. While there, thankfully, I had a boss that saw some potential in me and put me on the fast track to management. After three months as a barista, I was asked to apply to be an assistant manager. From there, I eventually ended up filling in as a store manager. I was enjoying my life in Nashville, but still had this desire to pursue the musician's life. So I, I took the money that I had, and like every other foolish musician, actor, artist, or just plain crazy person, I took off to L.A. I was lucky enough to find a place to stay by renting a room in this older lady's house. She offered me a bargain of a deal at 800 bucks a month for a 9 by 10 bedroom in Sherman Oaks, California. So to recap, in 2008, I had very little money, and I was paying 800 bucks a month to live. I cannot remember the homeowner's name, but I do remember her son's. It didn't take me but a few minutes walking around her house to see pictures of famed choreographer and dancer Wade Robson. Wade was a professional dancer who was discovered in Australia while while Michael Jackson was on one of his world tours. As a kid, Wade moved to L.A. to be trained by Michael and his team, ultimately ended up in multiple Michael Jackson music videos, and becoming one of Michael's closest friends. As Wade became a well-known choreographer, he started working with the boy band NSYNC and the solo artist Britney Spears. And then those that are my age may remember the motivation behind Justin Timberlake's Cry Me a River song. That was Wade. So here I am in L.A., and I get this opportunity to share dinners and late-night conversations with Wade and his mom, hearing stories about Michael Jackson and Justin Timberlake, who both people I hold in high regards, musically speaking. Wade was nice enough to introduce me to a, a music producer he knew who was working with a few pop artists. This producer invited me to sit in on a couple sessions to watch him work. So how did I end up breaking into the industry? Right place, right time with the right information. One day while in the studio, the whole music board shut down, mid-session. 
as all of, all of the professionals ran around freaking out, I sat in the back just observing, being a fly in the wall as I was told to do. As they were starting to panic, I remember having a situation just like this occur while I was in school. So politely, I whispered to the producer what I thought was, could be the problem. He told me to hop up and try it. Well, as you can probably guess, it worked. The board was back up and running, and as quickly as it was fixed, I was offered a seat at the recording board and told to run the session. I was now the guy from here on out. I started getting the reputation for being really quick on the board, which allowed for quicker turnarounds on production. Late one night while working, one of the artists looked at me and said, man, you're quick. He said, I'm going to start calling you quick. So for the next five years, half of my friends in LA only knew me as quick. There's a small part of the story that I didn't mention yet. Although I was constantly being used for my services, I wasn't getting paid. I kept getting promised that I would get paid, but I never did. I was working with some of the biggest acts in music for free. It only took me about three months before I ran out of money and had to move out of the place that I was living in. The producer that quote-unquote hired me to do all of this free work so generously allowed me to live in his place for a couple months before he ran out of money. Or shall I say, before he ran into some money problems and got kicked out. Turns out he was pocketing all the money and not paying anybody, so it came back around to him. Now this leads me to the next chapter of my life. And to this day, still probably one of the more tougher moments in my life. With no real job, no place to live, and no money, I was now officially homeless. Determined that my break was right around the corner, I decided I needed to find a way to stay in L.A., so the only option I could find was to move into my car. This is the part of the story where a six foot three, 225 pound man lives in his two door Toyota Celica. The first couple nights were admittedly kind of exciting. I can do this. So, with all my clothes in the trunk and, and back seat, I reclined the front seat as low as it would go and tried to sleep. If you've ever tried to sleep in your car in the driver's seat, you'll know it's not very comfortable. Every time I moved, my knee would ram into the stick shift and wake me up. I found a busier street because I figured it would be safe there, and I parked in a metered parking space since the meters are, sh- are shut off at nighttime. Well, that didn't work. Every car that drove by blasting music or every crazy person yelling and screaming walking down the sidewalk woke me up. I had to get smarter if I was going to survive in my car. I won't go share every single detail of every story, but let me share with you a quick summary of how I survived in my car for a year. With the little money that I had and the one-off gigs I received from engineering in the studio, I got a small storage unit to move my clothes into. Once my clothes were, were removed, I was able to lower the back seat so there was a clear path from the trunk to the, to the back of the front seats. Each week, I would grab my clothes for the week and keep those in the car for both cushions, pillows, and the occasional blanket. I would lay with my feet all the way towards the back of the right tail light and rest my head on the center console in the front seat. And surprisingly, this worked pretty well. One thing I didn't realize about California is that it actually gets kind of cold at nighttime, but once the sun comes up, it gets warm. So I'd fall asleep covered in clothes and then wake up sweating underneath those clothes. The parking situation was a little tough, but 
ended up finding a great little area called Toluca Lake. Toluca Lake was a fairly quiet place at nighttime. I found a great parking lot that housed a 24-hour restaurant and a Starbucks. So I decided to try it out for a night or two. And it ended up being a great spot, a safe spot. If I wasn't spending the day at the studio, I'd wake up, go into the Starbucks for work, apply for jobs, and hopefully get some of the leftover food at the end of the day. I thankfully made a few friends that work there, and they would let me know when they had to throw away the food at the end of the shift. I'd collect as many of those sandwiches as possible and eat those over the next few days. On the days I was in the studio, I found a Ralph's next to the studio that had two donuts for 50 cents. So I'd grab two donuts and a pint of milk, and that would hold me over until dinner. Occasionally, if I needed a break from the car, I would sleep in the studio. I would tell the studio owner I was going to be working late, and then I would lock up after I left. After everyone else left, around 1.30 or 2 a.m., I'd fall asleep on the couch. I'd set my alarm for an early wake-up to make sure that I was up before the studio owner got back in the morning, and it actually worked out pretty well. An air-conditioned night of sleep, I couldn't complain. And over time, I became better friends with a couple people who would let me crash on their couch from time to time. So to all the kind people that allowed me to sleep on your couch, thank you. If you're in L.A., desperate for money, one of the easiest things to do is to become a background actor. Essentially, these are the no-name, no-credit, out-of-focus, background conversational people that serve no purpose but to create movement and activity in the background. For $8 an hour, you can show up, be treated like you have no worth, ushered around like cattle, and ignored by every single non-background actor there. But for $8 an hour, you get food, you get to see your favorite celebrity, and you get paid to do the easiest job around. So lo and behold, I saw this as another win-win. Paid and food. My first big background role was upgraded to what is called a featured background. I don't really know the exact definition of a featured background, but essentially my role was to play basketball with one of the main characters on a show called Nip Tuck. I remember my first time showing up on this real TV set. I look around and there's loads and loads of food everywhere. Buckets full of waters, Cokes, Gatorades, two food trucks, including an omelet station that had a sign saying, Daily Special, Filet Mignon. I mean, come on now. I gained 20 pounds that day. I consumed more food and drinks than I had the previous three months. Every break we had, which was quite often, I would grab two drinks, one for my backpack and one for me to consume right then and there. It was a great day. I did a few more of these background gigs, mainly for the free food, but I'll never forget the fun experiences I had pretending to be an actor for a very short time. One day while walking around a grocery store, I was approached asking if I wanted to audition to be on a game show. I laughed it off as a joke, but she pulled out a business card and said if I was interested to email her and she'll send me more information. So many thoughts ran through my head, but the most nagging was this fact that I was homeless. In the amazingly low odds that I was actually chosen to be on this game show, I was scared that my story would be broadcast to the world. I then reminded myself, hey, I'm a minimum wage background actor. I can pretend with the best of them. So when I got back to the Starbucks, I emailed her and told her I was interested. I then received the audition information for a game show called Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? I showed up to this large casting with so many well-dressed, well-spoken, anxious people. As they were all studying and reading, I just stood there, 
smiling and laughing at myself for even considering this as something I should be considered for. Fast forward to a month later, I received a call that I was chosen to be a contestant. I will now get an opportunity to show the world that I am not smarter than a fifth grader. Around this time, I started playing in a fairly popular local band, and so the show decided to focus my whole episode around the fact that I was a musician couch surfing with my band while we try to make it famous. The morning of the recording, I showed up to the dressing room nervous and excited. A few things that I learned fairly quickly about game shows, or at least this one. They film multiple shows in one day, so they use the same audience, but rotate in different contestants. On this day in particular, seven contestants showed up to film their episodes. Call time was 6 a.m. We all show up. Dressing rooms were shared by most, except for some reason I got lucky and received my own dressing room. At 7 a.m., the producer's assistant came in to welcome me and give me an update of what today will look like. Around 8 a.m., we'd all come out of our dressing rooms and do a show walkthrough from the introduction to the way we'll be going into commercials and some of the questions we may be asked by the host, Jeff Foxworthy. After getting back into my dressing room and finding out my episode will not be filming until 1.30 p.m., I did whatever I could to distract myself while passing the time. I took a nap, I ate food, I ate more food, and slept some more. After all, this was an opportunity for me to eat free food and sleep on a nice couch in an air-conditioned room, so I took full advantage of it. The makeup artist came to my room about 45 minutes before it was my turn to go on stage. And I was only supposed to have her look at me to ensure that I looked okay, but I convinced her to give me a little makeup to remove the bags under my eyes. Showtime. I get ushered to the side of the stage, and I hear the crowd getting pumped up. I can see Jeff Foxworthy standing up there getting his makeup and hair touched up, and I am now officially nervous. The music starts, Jeff does his introduction, and just like that, my name is being announced. I run out on stage, high-five the kids, all the while praying I don't trip on national TV. I get up to the stage and it pretty much becomes a blur. I remember bits and pieces, but the main thing I remember was how amazingly kind Jeff Foxworthy was, both on camera and off of it. He was laughing with me during commercial breaks and even told me at one point he thought I was a cool guy and wished me the best in my future. But back to the game. So many easy answers I did not know. With all that being said, I ultimately had to stand in front of the world and say, I, Matthew Carrier, or Kewia, I, Matthew Carrier, am not smarter than a fifth grader. Although I did have to embarrass myself on national TV, I had a blast and was able to collect around $8,500 in cash for my winnings. Overall, an unbelievable experience that I'll never forget. It's now been about seven years from that day. And so many more crazy, fun, interesting experiences have come my way. As I continue on this journey, I will hopefully continue to share with you this chapter I am currently writing. I've started two businesses that have failed. I've lost close friends. I've been betrayed by close friends. I've lost family members. But at the end of the day, there's one part of me that will never leave me. A part of me that will always give me hope and give me joy and give me perseverance. I was saved by the grace of God and am continually being lifted through tough waters. Now I understand that 
because of certain misinterpretations of scripture through false religions, we have a distorted view of what it means to love, to be loved, and to live in love. So I encourage for anyone needing love, go to the source. I encourage anyone needing help to ask for help. I hope that you've enjoyed this three-part breakdown of my story. My only desire through this experiment was to shine a light on my weaknesses, my insecurities, and my failures, and to provide hope that there is a way to keep moving forward so that you don't quit. So before we end, let me leave you with this. Attitude is a choice. Happiness is a choice. Optimism is a choice. Kindness is a choice. Giving is a choice. Respect is a choice. Whatever choice you make, makes you. So choose wisely. I'll see you next week.